So uh, I'm a dad again. Yeah. So hello to my family at home. They were, we were thinking about all coming, but that's uh, didn't happen. So, man, it's been a, uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a week. It's been a week of little sleep with a new baby and uh, sinus infection, all sorts of stuff. But we are here and we're thankful to be in the house of the Lord. And um, yeah, I was uh, kind of reminiscing about our first year here and when it was just like a, a quaint couple of us. And uh, I remember talking to Brian and Daniel, like, what is the hardest thing about ministry? It's like just getting people to show up at the same time to the same place. That's it. <laughs> like, that's the hardest thing about it. And so I, I but seriously, thank you for being here. Um, I know there's sacrifices that you've had to make to be here, to be here all semester. This has been one wild ride this semester. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you for putting in the effort. Thank you for sticking with us. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being part of this family. And thank you for being a part of this army. We love you all very, very much. And uh, we just wouldn't be here without you guys. And, uh, and also those who have gone before you. Like, yeah. It's, it's a sweet, sweet place and it's a sweet time. Um, yeah, I just get sentimental when I start preaching and studying, so bear with me. Uh, but let's pray. Jesus, would you say all that you want to be said and say nothing you don't want to be said, Jesus? Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right. So, story time. So, uh, me as a little kid was an interesting fellow. I had like, I was just heightened emotionally. If I was mad, I was really, really mad. If I was sad, I was really, really sad. Nothing was done halfway. If I was happy, I was extremely happy, right? There was no, there was no chill mode with little Jeremiah, if you might imagine. <laughs> so, and I was ultra, ultra, ultra competitive. And so uh, in the third grade, they had UIL competition. Do you all even do those? You like have poetry reading, you have like picture memory, stuff like that. Well, I did poetry reading because I could win. I knew I could win. Um, and I did the same poem every year. It was True Story by Shel Silver. About this kid who just basically tells one big, huge, honking lie. And he can't create his way out of the last thing, so he just dies in the end. There, I spoiled it for you. But um, I had a wonderful, wonderful teacher who was trying to coach me of how to how to say poetry and stuff like that. And I was like the kid who was like, I can win off of natural talent alone. I need no coaching. So any sort of criticism was devastating to me. Any little critique was like, here comes the waterworks, right? I just could not handle it. But I had a good teacher because she was patient, but she never lowered her standards. So she, would exp she explained to me, listen, I have to tell you these things, and you need to improve on these things so that you can get better. You want to win, don't you? And that was, I was a sucker for that, right? And so she taught me how to win, and win I did. But um, the lesson that I learned 
was that you have to learn how to hear and to accept other people's criticism. And you have to learn to not be offended. Um, this isn't in my notes, but another guy who did this, I just learned this recently, it's pretty cool. A guy in the Bible named Judah. He was uh, not, not like this outstanding, wonderful character by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, he, uh, he how do I say this? He um, had relations with his daughter-in-law. But it's okay because he thought she was a prostitute. But then, well, he still slept with a prostitute. So this guy's not that great. But the wonderful thing about Judah is that Judah never shucked the responsibility of his own actions. And he, he, took, he always fessed up to it and took the blame. And I think it's interesting because Jesus calls himself the Lion of Judah. And so Jesus is the champion of people who take the blame kind of cool. Anyway, so learn to accept criticism. Um, I don't know where I heard this, but Chi Alpha are, um, received some criticism, and they said, and this is what I heard. don't know where I heard it from. It says, y'all don't preach to lost people. And I thought for a second, and I was trying to reflect on my own sermons, and I said, you know what? That's, that's probably fair. It's probably fair, because I I'm a resource leader, so I hang out with small group leaders, and then I hang out with very faithful small group members, and so I don't spend um, every day with lost people, so that's not where my mind is, that's not where my heart necessarily is, but it's where it should be, and so if I want to improve, then I have to accept the criticism no matter where it comes from, and so um, what I'm going to attempt to do tonight is to preach to every spectrum of people that's here and not make any assumptions about where you're at spiritually. I hope that's a good start. So, how do we preach to lost people? Where do we start? If you were to say one attribute to a lost person about God, what would it be? If you were to say God is what? Stephen's small group may not answer this question. But 99% of people, maybe less, but probably 90% of people would say God is love, and that's what the world needs to hear, right? Yes. <laughs> but where does that put people? If that's the first thing they hear about God, we're making a few assumptions about them, and we're assuming that they have a good idea of what love is. And that we're assuming that they have a good idea of who of what God is, <laughs> right? And so I, I think that's not the right place to start. Because then people say, well, I'm not going to go to hell. God loves me. Why would he send me to hell? Why, I can do whatever I want. He loves me. He likes me. We're good. Me and God, we got this thing. You know, we're good. Man, I've heard that too many times to uh, not get angry still. So, so we have to start with the right premise, right? So, so where do we start? We should start where the Bible starts. And the Bible is always telling God that he is righteous. He is a righteous God, meaning he's always right. <laughs> Whatever he does is the right thing. No matter what it is, he's right. And if you don't think he was right, 
by flooding the earth or killing off certain people groups, well, then you're wrong. It's just simply the way it is. You can't separate God from his righteousness. He is not bound to some higher law of righteousness. He is of himself righteous. There is no righteousness apart from God. There is no other way to judge morality other than through the eyes of God, right? So he is in and of himself, apart from anything else, righteous. The Lord is innocent of all charges brought against him because righteousness is a part of him. Now, okay, that's challenging. So how do we reason with God? Because there are some evils in this world that we just don't understand. So how do we reason with God? Well, I love the way Abraham does it in Genesis 18.25. So the backstory is crazy. You really need to read it for yourself. But basically, Abraham is hanging out, having lunch with God and some angels. Really cool story. And as they're walking away, God says, we need to let Abraham know what we're about to do. And God is about to annihilate Sodom and Gomorrah. And he brings Abraham aside, and he tells him what he's going to do. He tells him his plan. He says, I'm going to kill all of these wicked people. And Abraham freaks out like I would, and he says, no, you can't do that. Because Abraham was operating under the assumption that there has to be some righteous people. You can't destroy them all. And this is what he says. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fair as the wicked far be that from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right you God are righteous whatever you do is right how can you do this thing see Abraham made the argument on the assumption of God's own character that and that's how we should approach God we take what we know of his character and approach him in such a manner where we say, are you going to be who you said you were, right? And he always will be. But the cool thing about it is, is God reveals his own character in a new and a spectacular way in that. Because, duh, he ends up being right in the end, and he shows you how right he is, and it's a beautiful thing. Now, we're not to Sodom and Gomorrah yet, <laughs> yet, <laughs> but this can be a bit of a chaotic and a really just a mostly dramatic <laughs> time in our history, um, not just in our nation, but I'm talking about the holidays, <laughs> you know what I mean, like all your family gets together and it's just, it's just dramatic, it's overly dramatic, right? Um. <laughs> Now, when there is drama that doesn't necessarily include you, but you're kind of part of it, you know what I mean? Like people are asking you and they're trying to involve you, but you're not really the source of the drama or the subject of the drama. What is our normal response? And I think sometimes we jump the gun a little bit and our first response is to give advice. But advice is not necessarily, and sometimes it's the worst thing you can give 
if, if it's not asked for. If it is asked for, then that person is giving you a right to speak into life, and by all means, you are free to take it. But if our friend is, but you might say, if our friend is suffering, shouldn't we do something? We are ministers after all. We are small group leaders after all. We are Christians after all. This is our duty. This is our ministry. But look at the ministry of Job's friends. Their intent was to help Job and to teach him about the Lord and how to live his life according to the ways of the Lord, but their presumption about Job's situation was wrong, and their presumption about the Lord was wrong, and this is why their ministry failed. I would say it would be way worse if their ministry was a success, and there are ministries that are successful based on false premises. To give wisdom to our friends in difficult or dramatic situations, we must have we must have an eternal perspective. We must see the things the way God sees them. And if we don't, <laughs> we shouldn't say anything until we know. This is why theology is so important. I know to a lot of people it's just boring, but it matters what we think about God. And it matters what God's character actually is and how to translate that to a lost world who doesn't know him. We have to be those things so that people can see a picture of what God is. We must have a right view of God. And the right view of God is to acknowledge that he is always right. That is the beginning of good theology. If you just understand God is always right all of the time, and I have to bow my understanding to that premise, you are starting off on a great foot. You will have good theology if you start from there. Now, when there is drama in the ministry, our tendency, especially as ministers and small group leaders and small group members, these are our friends, is to often try to fix the mechanism. We'd want to identify the problem and change or alter whatever we can to fix the machine. We start to analyze all of our leadership strategies and make our Bible studies more wild and creative and do things bigger and brighter and better. We may start to become amateur psychologists and try to figure out all of the childhood circumstances or what secret sin was lurking in the shadows that led an unfortunate person to a bad place, to this destructive drama. But I think we overcomplicate things. I think the gospel's simple. Friends, I really believe with all of my heart that so many of our problems are due to not being in the presence of God. If we were just with Jesus and we brought an experience of Jesus with us to our friends. Think about the experience you had with Jesus that changed your life forever. And if you haven't had an experience with Jesus, that experience will never leave you the same. So what should we do then? Should we just tear our clothes and sit in the ashes with Job? Maybe. Maybe. And when you speak, and I think you should speak, 
you better speak like a prophet, like an apostle, with the righteous words of a holy God. That's the responsibility of being a disciple of Jesus. That's what all the disciples of Jesus did. How are we any different? We must speak with the power of the Holy Ghost. This is a huge responsibility. <laughs> it's an amazing responsibility. God is asking you to be responsible, you and me, to be responsible for the things he holds most dear. His family, his kids. And he's asking us to be responsible with it. And the only way to bear that burden, that great and wonderful burden, is to be at peace with God. And the only way to be at peace with a righteous God is to us ourselves be righteous. And we can't earn our own righteousness. The only way for man to be righteous is to be soaked in the precious blood and presence of Jesus. I love this verse in Hosea. It says, Sow yourselves in righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness upon you. I uh, often make fun of the, the worship songs like Let It Rain, Let It Rain, etc., etc., etc. And I just, man, if the Lord was raining righteousness in the places where the, you know, I do want his righteousness to rain down and morality be, to be made right and all of the things wrong with the world to be made right. That is what we desire. And we don't start people off with the love of God. Oh, man, this might get spicy. Because the Bible reserves the love of God for his children. Let me say that again. We don't start with love because the Bible reserves the love of God for his children. Now, before you think I'm super Calvinist, just hold on. <laughs> Now, when the Bible talks about the love of God, it usually says agape love. Now, agape is a love of action. It does something. And God's act of love is for everyone. The cross of Christ is for everyone. But his beauty is revealed after you get to know him. Yeah. The beauty of the gospel is that a righteous and just God would choose to die for the unrighteous so that we may be become righteous. This is the most beautiful love story ever told. And he will tell it again and again and again. And he's telling it right now. And he's telling it through Edward. He's telling it through Isaac. And he's telling it through Patty. He's telling it through so many of you, and he wants to tell it again and again and again. Now, whether you're lost or saved, there's usually only one thing, one thing that I've found that's holding people back from a, a closer walk or a walk with God. 
He doesn't throw all of the thing, all of your sins before you and say, fix your life and then come to me. That's not how he, he just says, you give up this one thing and I'll meet you where you're at, typically. And that's what I've seen in people. And the people I've seen walk away from the Lord is because they had one thing they wouldn't give up. They just wouldn't. They would rather live the life of Gollum and go into their cave and wither away with their precious ring than they would to give it up. And you know, the Lord always asks you to give up the most precious thing to you. Do you know why that is? Because it's in his seat. It's in his chair. That thing is sitting on the throne of your heart where he should be. And he's going to keep asking you for the thing that you keep putting up there until you put him there yourself. Until he is the thing you long for. Until he is the thing you singularly desire. He's going to keep asking you to give up that thing. And it's going to keep getting harder and harder. Or it's going to get real easy when you put him on the throne of your life. I'm not going to tell you what it's like once you put him there because that is a joy reserved for those who believe in him. That's like too great of a secret to spoil. <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> All right. I love Tozer. He has been helping me my whole Christian life. And I've just recently repurchased the book that I had. It's like this... It would mean not much to most people. It's just this like daily devotional. It's, it's a month-long thing, and you can read it. But it has like all of these excerpts from Tozer, and I just I've been falling in love with it all over again. But he says, in uh, in the pursuit of God, I want to deliberately, I want deliberately to encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our lowest state. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. Too bad that many of us, he waits so long, so very long in vain. He waits to be wanted. What a special, wonderful God. So many people complain that if God is good, why does all this evil exist? Well, would you like him to destroy it all of a sudden? If so, I don't think there would be many people left on the earth. But his patience allows us a chance to accept his cross. Thank you, Jesus. And I love this. Make your heart a vacuum and the spirit will rush in to fill it. Man, that's good. Get rid of that stuff. It doesn't need to be there. All right, Danny, if you want to come back up. This fight, this fight to get the things off of our, the throne of our heart is a fight that you have to go through alone. Now, hold on a second. I'm not saying to dish all your friends and small group is a waste of time. No, that's not what I'm saying. Fellowship is very, very important. It has its place, absolutely. But no one 
can accept the cross of Jesus for you. You must accept it for yourself. You alone have to go through this. I love this by G.D. Watson. He says, The Lord selects for each of us those crucifixions which will most perfectly mortify us and reduce us to our lone nothingness. He is trying to empty his vessel so that he can fill it with all of the goodness that he is. We have to be alone with God in finding personal salvation. Others may be used as instruments in bringing conviction, light, help in various ways, but there becomes a crisis both in the work of regeneration and of sanctification in which the soul must be detached from others and deal only with God. We meet our Jesus singularly. We must apprehend him for ourselves. We must speak he must speak to us with his own voice. Amen. You must give your life to Jesus. No one can do it for you, though I suspect there are some in this room that wish they could. You are the only one who can give your life to God. God wants to make peace with you. In fact, he died to make peace with us. If you want to make peace with God, if you want to make peace with God, the righteous God, if we are to make peace with a righteous God, we must become righteous. The only way for man to become righteous is through the blood of Jesus. You've got to say he's right. <laughs> and in so doing, it means you're wrong. So in a minute, I'm going to ask everyone to pray. If you have, have not met Jesus yet, I invite you to come to the altar, spread out social distance, whatever. But I want you to meet with Jesus. And I want to ask everyone in this room to pray. And I would like you to spread out and pray. And get alone with Jesus. And if you don't know how to, pr how to pray, that's okay. This is what a prayer is. You get alone, you get on your knees, and you close your eyes, and you kind of wait till everything and everyone disappears, and it's just you and God, and you can tell him whatever you want. You can cuss him or you can kiss him, but it's just you and him. So if you want to move about the room, Let's get separated. Get alone with Jesus. I, uh, you know, the song, the last song that we sang, um, it's, uh, the reason I like it so much is, um, you know, last week Daniel talked about us being in the garden for the first time and handing the keys over to Satan. And this song is both a song about when Adam walked with Jesus in the garden alone but I think it's also into our future of when we walk with Jesus alone. So I want you to just think about that. Think about being alone with Jesus and having peace with him. And having peace because he's made you righteous. He's taken your sin upon himself. And he's laid it in the ground. And he said, that's not you anymore. I'll tell you who you are. 
And guys, here's the secret. That's not just for the lost, but it's for people who've been walking with Jesus two weeks or 20 years. It doesn't matter. There's always further we get to go with God. So, uh, so go down that road with him. You'll never regret it.